Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Bale Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And from the other side of the Atlantic, coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we enjoy creating it. A lot of people ask, Mike, why do you and Bella do this? Well, it's certainly not to make money, but the two of us really like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world's changing, how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing, and overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've each learned over three plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people that we've met recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. This week's guest is John C. Warner. John is an accomplished entrepreneur and an author. He has written 40 books, the most recent titled SLAM. That's capital S, capital L, capital A-M. We had a very interesting conversation around starting a business and building your brand. Yep. Uh, I learned a lot from John, and I thought it was really good. Yep. This is great, Bela. So let's jump right into the interview. This podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. We are proud to partner with Phillips Lytle because of the entrepreneurial approach they take to legal matters and their long history of success with startup businesses. Their nationally recognized attorneys think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. Whether you need help starting, funding, or selling a business, from single-person startups to nine-figure exits, the attorneys at Phillips Lytle can help. I have worked with Phillips Lytle for years, and they are recognized as the go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. For more information, contact Phillips Lytle partner Rich Honan. You can find him at philipslytle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. Hello, listeners. Bela here. Uh, Today, my guest is John Warner. Uh, He is an accomplished entrepreneur and uh, also a uh, prolific author, having written 40 books, uh, the latest of which is named Slam. And um, so I think we are going to have a fabulous discussion today. Uh, Welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much, Bela. It's great to be here. Nice to have you. Thank you. So, uh, John, let me uh, start off by asking you a, a simple question. If you're at a uh, social event and someone comes up to you and says, oh, very nice to meet you, John, uh, what, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that question? That's always a hard question to answer. But I think I like to describe myself first as an author. Um, I like writing um, and, and have done. I blog every week. I post something every day. And as you said in the introduction, I've written a number of books. And I see that as my chance to distill information uh, that I gather from talking to a lot of people in the world, many of whom are a lot smarter than I am, uh, and then present that back in what I hope are coherent models and ways of thinking about difficult subjects. Uh, So although there's a lot going on in terms of uh, what's on my business card, uh, I think I'd like to see myself uh, through the lens of someone who writes primarily. It's uh, it's what's on my passport in any case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having written 40 books, I I think you qualify to be an author. (laughs) Okay. Thanks very much. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So let's talk about your latest book, uh, Slam. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? I can. And in some ways, it's a little different. I've, I've written in the realm of leadership, innovation, uh, you know, all under the umbrella of business many times. But what I wanted to do this time was write something that I thought might have a longer shelf life. 
Um, and this came out of my experience in the last 20 years of working increasingly with startup companies um, and uh, seeing that they had particular needs in terms of navigating what is a very difficult journey. Uh, so SLAM is an acronym. Um, it's, it stands for Startup Launch Assistance Map, and that's literally what it is. The book is uh, a framework, an exploratory framework for any startup company to think about the questions they need to be considering uh, as they evolve their startup. Um, so the book provides that framework in, in two forms, which I can talk about. The, the first is a validation framework, which has eight steps on it. And then the second, if the validation uh, works, is an execution framework, which perhaps not surprisingly uh, has eight steps on it as well. Um, and if you follow those rigorously, I think your chances of de-risking what you're doing and then gaining some kind of success are heightened. Yeah, excellent. So, John, there's a there's a lot of these types of books out there in the marketplace. Uh, you know, uh, various different methodologies for doing a startup, uh, methodologies for managing your startup and growth, etc. So, what makes what makes Slam different? So that's a great question because uh, I agree there are a lot of startups, some of which I I like very much. Uh, I like. Uh, uh, particularly the Lean Business Model Canvas movement. And I think that's had uh, a great impact on the startup community in the last decade in particular. In fact, I'm a national mentor with uh, the National Science Foundation and have used Business Model Canvas and people like uh, Steve Blank and Eric Ries and then Osterwelder and Pinya, who wrote the Business Model Canvas book, have done a great job for all of us by really getting us to get our business thinking uh, into a much uh, shorter format, um, particularly on the business model canvas onto one page. The problem in using that in the last 10 years I've had is that that particular approach, and a lot of them are not necessarily simple enough, and neither are they sequential. And I think there is a sequence to at least the questioning journey you have to follow so what I've tried to do is to compensate for what I see is small shortfalls in a number of these models and try and make uh, this both a little bit more coherent and more sequential for sure. And that's really what the SLAM map does, uh, particularly in terms of those eight steps that I mentioned earlier. Ah, excellent. Excellent. Uh, so this is pr can you can you share with us maybe one or two little nuggets uh, without giving away the whole book uh, that uh that I think would be of interest to our audience, which is fundamentally entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, and like you, Baylor, uh, I teach entrepreneurship, um, both at undergraduate and MBA level. So I, I teach this to students quite a bit. I, I think the, the first uh, takeaway for me, and it's not surprisingly the very first step on the SLAM map, is surfacing unmet needs. Uh, and by that, I mean, I don't see startups spending enough time digging into the problem they're solving for. Uh, I see a lot of startups having an idea um, and then uh, pushing that idea to market a little bit too early and without validating this enough. Uh, I think that that's a risky approach. Sometimes it can work, but more often than not, I think it comes up against problems um, you know, we often call this the build it and they will come approach. Um, you often need a lot of time, patience, capital for that to work. And I think you can de-risk that. And I think you can do that by really getting a lot of customer feedback early on. Um, that's, that's my feeling. So I think the first thing is a good startup is built on the solid rock of really understanding those unmet needs. And so I think that's my very first takeaway. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, in my experience, both as a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur, our, my, my first company failed because we we didn't quite figure out customer needs very well. Right. Uh, th th those are really, really critical uh, things to do. And yes, in, in some sectors, uh, it's much easier to do. Uh, because you can you can easily put together a minimum viable product in a few weeks, and you can sort of share it with people and get some quick feedback. Uh, 
in other sectors where there's you know hardware involved or uh, uh, some more elaborate or involved uh, design time to even get to a working prototype, uh, how do you address it with with those types of companies? So I, I actually see the situation a little differently, and, and here's why. I, I think the barriers to entry in terms of coming into a startup are much lower now, although I agree with you. It depends the sector you're going to enter. I mean, obviously, you know, developing, say, a pharmaceutical product um, or something like it is a much longer cycle. But I think what we've got wrong in our thinking is this funny phrase, which is ubiquitous now, called product market fit. I think what that does is puts product first and market second. And I think we should be reversing that. It should be market product fit. So I think it doesn't matter what sector you're in. I think our key role in the beginning of a startup journey is to really understand the market and the customers within that market. Um, And when I say within it, I mean particular tribes that we can identify that want what we're offering or want what we potentially have to offer. And I think that's how the de-risking process takes place, Um, because I think you can ask those questions fairly cheaply and early on and then assess, you know, at least verbally from those customers, whether they think it's likely to have efficacy at the sort of price that you think you want to charge for whatever it is you're developing. So while I agree in general, I think it then depends what the product is and how long they're prepared to wait. I think you can reverse that whole product market fit thinking into market product fit. And I think it gives you a huge advantage if you do. Yeah, excellent. Excellent point. Well said. Uh, the other the other comment I'll add uh, that I've seen with uh, a fair number of startups is they do their uh, market product fit within their circle of friends, acquaintance, acquaintances, and, yes. you know, birds of the same feather or however that saying goes. And and they don't oftentimes get outside of that sphere. And, yes. Uh, that either sometimes means they miss a market uh, or a market opportunity uh, or they or they just get the wrong feedback. Yes, I agree. And I think this is often called the mom test, isn't it? You know, the mom <laughs> yes. test. If you go and ask your mom, you know, what she thinks. She loves you anyway. So she's going to say, you know, Baylor, John, we love your idea. You know, you're a great guy. And, of course, your friends are much the same. Um And that's not the tribe that you're necessarily selling to anyway. Um, So I I think you're absolutely right. I think there's two biases we have to overcome. One is sort of, you know, the availability bias, which is our friends who like us anyway. But I think the other is just making assumptions, um, you know, as a substitute for facts. Um, The market will love this. Customers will love this. And you don't necessarily go and talk to the very customer you're targeting. I think you've got to do both. And you've got to do it at scale. Uh, so you can see if there's patterns emerging. Right, right. One of the things I talk about in some of my classes is the uh, facts to assumptions ratio. Yes. <laughs> and it, and in many in many places, that's zero because there's zero facts and it's all assumptions. Yeah, so. it almost beggars belief, doesn't it? I, I see so many startups which have been running some cases for months and years without any facts in terms yeah. of you know why they're doing what they're doing. It's just incredible to my yeah. mind. And it's okay to start there. I mean, a lot of, lot of things start there in life and that there's nothing wrong with that. But sure. I think you got to move beyond that and, and, and start putting some real data and some real facts in, into the equation. That's right. It's all about corroboration. So I agree. It's totally... Uh, useful to have a hypothesis, but I think you've got to test that hypothesis just as we would in science. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't think we'd be moving forward. There'd be no progress if uh, if we didn't corroborate our findings. Yes. So Slam sounds like a wonderful book. Uh, where can people get it? So it's available uh, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, uh, I mean, in a number of bookshops now. Um, there's also a website that's dedicated to the book, which is called slamprocess.com. Um, And that's useful because uh, there's a number of things on that website that give more detail. There's even some very easy to use templates, which are free as resources uh, on that website as well as if people want to check that out first. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, uh, I will make sure I put that in the show notes uh, so people can uh, find that information. So having written uh, 40 books, and and this is probably a totally unfair question. It will be like asking a parent who their favorite child is. But do you have a favorite book of the 40? 
So um, I've I've written a number of books that I've enjoyed writing. Uh, I uh, my largest selling book was certainly one I wrote on emotional intelligence about 15 years ago, and I enjoyed that because it led to uh, a lot of uh, speaking engagements and a lot of relationships I formed as a result of it. Um, but I've, 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 and you almost expect me to say this, I've enjoyed writing this one because it's so process orientated um, and it's allowed me to uh, evolve a framework that I can practically deploy um, in ways that I couldn't before. So even in the time since the book was published, which is only a, a, a couple of months ago, uh, I've been able to go and go into brand new situations that weren't available to me before. So that's been hugely enjoyable. I, I do like a book to open new doors for me. Oh, that's great. That's great. So John, uh, how, tell me about your journey. How did you, uh, how did you end up, uh, where you are today? Uh, take us back to, you know, John as a, as a 10 year old young lad, Okay. Well, if I go that far back, Baylor, I'm, uh, I think my, my father wanted me to be an architect. He worked in construction and thought that was the top of the tree. And I remember uh, being an architect officers uh, in, my, uh, in my summer vacations uh, from the age of about 13 upwards. Um, and I, I pretty quickly determined that's not what I wanted to do. Um, and so I actually went off uh, to college uh, to go and do, uh, would you believe, a philosophy degree, uh, thinking that I'd do a degree about thinking. Um, and on, I was on a path to be uh, an attorney for a little while, uh, changed my mind on that. And when I finally did pop out, I ended up in, in business and on the sales side um and uh, evolved my career from there i was lucky enough to join fairly major corporations i i worked for uh, air products and chemicals in uh, in pennsylvania which is a very big company um and uh, worked my way up there then joined exxon mobil and worked my way up to being a general manager there but then felt corporate life uh, wasn't for me either uh, after 15 years of doing that uh so I then had a, a period where I did uh, a fair bit of management consulting work. And what was great about that was being able to dive into lots of other industries on the business side um, and get involved with all of that. And that's where I evolved my love for small and agile companies um, and startups. And in particular, I started uh, specializing in the realm of healthcare. Um, and that's really where I've spent uh, certainly more than 50% of my time in the last uh, 20 years. Um, and then within that, I have a passion these days for uh, the older adult space. Uh, I think we have more unmet needs in people who are 50 years of age and greater than we do anywhere else in the marketplace and not enough people solving for those issues. So when I teach entrepreneurship and I'm an adjunct professor at uh, two universities uh, in California, um, I like to use examples drawn from either healthcare, but more particularly from aging and, and their needs for innovation and technology, because they're many and various. Um, and I like to encourage people into the space if I can. So that's a very quick summary. Yeah, wonderful. So uh, as you moved from uh, the corporate environment to uh, consulting, which is basically your own business and being an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. Did you have an epiphany there that sort of said, okay, this is what I want to do? Or was it sort of more of a gradual sort of build up and saying, I'm bored, I want to try something new? Yeah, I, I, I think it was the latter. I think I got to the point where, uh, you know, it was more a matter of camping in a corporate job for a certain amount of time before the next job came about. And, you know, and, and I, I guess you always hit your level of incompetence sooner or later. And it just wasn't doing anything for me in terms of playing that waiting game. Um, so I wanted to dive out into something somewhat more entrepreneurial. And I was very lucky coming out of the oil industry. I had several colleagues that were running businesses that were my first clients. So I very quickly built that business up into uh, there were 15 people working in that consulting business for me. Um, and it became international very quickly. And I got the bug very quickly for entrepreneurship. Um, and I wanted to help entrepreneurs and, and then even start my own businesses. So having started a consulting business, uh, it wasn't difficult to then move on and do other things. So again, like you, Baylor, I think I've, I've had three startups um, in my time of my own that I've uh, started and uh, 
in one case sold i like to say i'm batting one for three i i, I had one spectacular failure one i got out by the skin of my teeth and one i uh, i managed to uh, get a reasonable exit from um so i i definitely had caught the bug by that point yeah well that's a that's a good batting average one for three i'll, I'll take that any day <laughs> in, the, okay, in the startup space absolutely uh the uh as as you as you sort of think about um startups and uh, what what kind of how did you then get to being such a prolific author right because because doing stuff is is has one skill set associated with it but being able to sort of think about that and reduce it to the written word that is meaningful to others is a is a real skill so how did how did that sort of evolve? So um, that's an easier answer because I documented everything uh, from the beginning. I always like to work my ideas out on paper. I would sketch diagrams, write annotating notes, and then write an explanatory narrative to go with it. I think in the early days it was about evolving my thoughts in areas where I didn't know much. Um, and writing about those to understand it. So as I, I read books or articles or whatever I was doing, I would summarize uh, and synthesize as best I could. And I just developed that writing muscle very early on. Uh, I was blogging in the very early days back in the 1990s before it was really even a thing, um, just because I enjoyed doing it. And I think the discipline of writing every day is really what makes an author so although I don't write fiction, I think writing on the business side is really just a matter of discipline. And I think I just evolved the discipline very early um, and it comes quite naturally to me. Um, I enjoy writing um, on pretty much any subject and it's my go to place to understand something where I've got very little prior knowledge of, uh, of the topic area. Oh, very nice. Very nice. So, uh, John, as you think about today's world uh, and in many ways, uh, the the famous author was sort of right. The world is flat. In other words, it's gotten a lot mm -hmm. easier to sort of get your product and your services distributed and known throughout the world. Um, but at the same time, that also makes it easier for your competition to do the same thing. So how do you think about what the, what the big challenges are for today's uh, individuals who are considering doing a startup uh, or, or small entrepreneurial companies? Yeah, and it'll sound a little hackneyed because I've heard it so many times before, but I think it's because it's true. I, I think you've got to believe in something. Um, often these days, it's often reduced to having a passion for something. I, I'm not sure it's quite having a passion, but I think you've got to decide what you uh, believe personally you want to see in the world that's different today. Uh, we could call this, you know, where is that clear blue ocean space where perhaps no one is ideating or innovating? Uh, but you have strong beliefs that it could be different. And I think if you can pick that area, um, I think you can create uh, space for yourself in that area. So I think it starts with focus in the areas where you think you can make a difference um, and and then uh, diving into the unmet needs of that space. Uh, so to use my own example, I, you know, although it took me a while to get wholly down to the, the older adult uh, innovation technology space, I've been in this now for 10 years or so, um, and it's what I write about most. It's what I blog about most. It's where I help startup companies the most. I, I run a virtual accelerator, which is wholly focused on helping companies come into this space and then understand that end consumer um, because you need a lot of granularity about a particular target market. Um, if I just take the over 50 market, it's 115 million people in the U.S., for example, and you can't treat it as a monolith as if it's all exactly the same. We have to get a lot of granularity to under, understand its unmet needs by a number of different dimensions, whether they're demographic or psychographic. So I think the challenge for all entrepreneurs is to pick a target market that they care about. They think they've got some passion about, some belief about, and then go all in to understand their needs and to solve for those needs. I think that's what I'd say in summary. And. And do you have some special uh, techniques or methodologies for sort of figuring out what those needs are? Yeah, I, I think this is part of the SLAM methodology when people read the book. Uh, I, I actually like people to go and sit under a tree or in a park somewhere or get some quiet space on their own in whatever way that works for them. And I like them to go and 
figure out their what I call their I believe statements. And I believes are things that you personally believe uh, or think that are perhaps a little different to um, the thoughts you hear others expressing. Um, and that might be dramatic. Uh, it might be the Wright brothers saying one day, I think men can fly. But more often than not, it's more prosaic than that. It's not about, I think we can get to the moon or fly. But it's about, I can. I, I think people can, ex- uh, can undertake a different experience. I think people can reduce a friction point. I think people can experience a gain that they're not getting today for whatever reason. And I think it's just about evolving that list. It's nice to keep a book and write those I believe statements down um, and then seeing the extent to which they stand out from what other people believe, the conventional wisdoms of the world. Um, And the more they adhere to it not being conventional wisdom, I think that's the realm in which um, customer discovery can really operate well. Um, So that's where I like to start on this journey, because I think what you're you're investigating then is not only a market, but, you know, the, the, the beginnings of an idea to solve for a problem that's a little different to anything we might have seen before. Right, right. And if I'm a, if I'm a young budding entrepreneur, you know, one of, one of your college students, um, and I don't know if you've ever come across this. I have, I, where, where, where folks keep great notebooks and they, and, mm-hmm. you know, some of them call them idea books. They just write down mm-hmm. idea after idea after idea. Yep. And um, they never really move on them, uh, but they have a great book of ideas and, and you sit down and you have a conversation with them and they say, well, they're all great. I don't know how to pick. I don't know how to pick one. What type of advice yeah. do you do you give give to someone like that? So I, I think it anchors back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about reversing that product market fit to market to market product fit. I, I think books of ideas are fine, but just on sh- sheer statistics, there's lots of ideas in the world. And in fact, you know, statistically, I'm, I'm sure you could probably appropriate any number of ideas from others. Universities are full of patented ideas that have gone nowhere. Uh, really smart research and thinking that you can appropriate. What's missing isn't the ideas. I think it's the clear identification of those unmet needs. So I'd rather see those idea books filled with uh, thoughts about those friction points, pain points, possible gain points that you've identified. And I think that comes back to listening really carefully. It comes back to being observant. Uh, just to take a silly example, you know, individuals can walk into a business, let's say it's a restaurant, for example, and they can just be observant about how that business is running. You know, uh, how are the waiters performing? How fast is food coming out? Where are the payment? Uh, checkout areas you know is the flow efficient are there empty chairs everywhere you can be observant everywhere you go and make notes about gaps that you see i think if you stuff a book full of those unmet needs sooner or later you're going to run across something that's a real wow Um, and i think at that point you can think well i can either solve this because i've got an idea myself or you can start thinking, well, where might those ideas lie in the world? Are they in universities? Should I be trawling patents that are out there that have gone nowhere um, or licensing something um, if I can't do it for myself? So I would just flip the whole question around and, and make it um, market-led, not idea or product-led. Yeah, excellent. Uh, that, I think, is a great observation and one that I think uh, will be valuable to, uh, to lots of individuals. Uh, I, I really like that, John. Right. Thank you very Thanks. much. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that that I sort of think about uh, is a challenge these days is is this notion of how do I build out my team? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Um, and again, uh, to anchor back to the slam book, uh, the second step on, on the slam map, and, uh, and it's very early after the unmet need, is the key team. What's the team you're going to deploy um, and how? So for me, in that whole market product fit equation, which is the value proposition meeting a customer segment's need, is the team that's going to do it. And I think more often than not, for a start, it's probably not the person that is sitting next to you or the family member. I mean, it's nice if it is, 
But you really want to not only gather the right people that can solve the problem that you've identified, but you want to really think about it more holistically than that. So who else can help you solve the problem? Um, and in some cases, especially early on, that gets you thinking about part-timers, fractional individuals that can help where they've got expertise or knowledge that you don't, um, advisory people that you should bring on board. So I think those are all in the equation when it comes to team really early on in the piece. Um, again, Baylor, you and I know um, I invest as, as you do. And I think, you know, we, we all like to say that we bet on the jockey more than we do on the horse. I think those things become increasingly crucial. Uh, you look for not only a good CEO, but good co-founders and then good recruits at all levels and all levels I've just mentioned. And then on top of that, you look for a really positive culture. Uh, where people are not only sort of driving towards the goal uh, on an execution basis, but also managing, you know, important things like risk. Uh, someone on the team has got to have, um, you know, a, a focus um, in in all of those different areas that are important in a startup journey. So it's skills, it's expertise, it's culture. So let me ask you a question, John. Earlier when I asked you about your uh, favorite book, uh, you mentioned uh, one of them. And it was, uh, I think, around emotional intelligence. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? I think that that is a really, really important uh, thing that I often value greatly, particularly when it comes to building out a team. Yes, I agree with you. And I think this is one of the things that startup founders and CEOs can pay a lot of attention to. Um, as we know, um, a, very, a lot of very smart people can come out of colleges and might just be smart in the first place. And the fact they're thinking about a startup usually means they're pretty uh, agile minded intellectually. But emotional intelligence takes uh, nurturing, uh, takes time and nurture. Um, and I think it's got a number of subcomponents to it. Uh, but one of them is uh, basically being open minded, growth minded, as Carol Dweck at Stanford calls it. Um, listening centered, which is very hard sometimes for a startup CEO to do, uh, open to the ideas of others because they're expected to be firm and certain in terms of what they're pursuing. But at the same time, you have to be listening centered as well. Um, you've got to be coachable because I think there are people uh, that are there to advise and have got good advice, both in terms of what hasn't worked in the past as well as what has. And I think they've got to be open to that as well. Uh, so I think that's all in the realm of emotional intelligence. Um, it's having empathy for not only people on your own team, but for people on the outside that can uh, help uh, the individual get from A to B. Um, so I like to see uh, a kind of a four quadrant grid in my mind, which is energy and empathy. And I think energy, you want your startup found to be high energy, uh, you know, have a lot of focus in terms of the goal, but at the same time, high empathy. Um, so very much people centric, very much open to feedback, open to learning, uh, open to be agile and pivot, um, as we like to say in the startup world. Um, and if you can develop those concurrently, it makes for a much better startup founder uh, than someone who just says that it's all about drive and, um, and energy alone. Yeah. And and so if I'm a I'm getting ready to do a startup or, or I'm in the middle of a startup and I, I want to gain some skills in being able to uh, use emotional intelligence in sort of uh, building my team. What's a good way for me to do that? So I, I think there's a number of practical things you can do, but uh, let's just pick, pick one. Uh, I think you can have uh, open team meetings, um, team meetings which aren't about uh, getting a group of people together and saying, did you hit your task? Um, and kind of, um, you know, basically running hard metrics, but to make it listening centered, uh, to basically make yourself the recipient of feedback from individuals before you make your decisions. Um, now, of course, within that, you want to evolve some skills. So I think it's good to read books about emotional intelligence and watch YouTube videos and articles and all the rest of it. But in the end, you've got to practice that. So practicing how to communicate in open ways, to listen effectively, uh, to uh, take other people's ideas 
seriously, not cut them off, for example, um, is something to get disciplined about. So I think weekly meetings, which are open, I mean, perhaps it's only a short meeting. It could be, you know, 15 or 20 minutes where you say we're ideating today and it's feedback orientated. And I'm not going to put myself in the position of the boss um, is a great way to encourage other people to be open and then to evolve those skills in the founder or CEO of a startup in the first place. I think open mindedness, that growth mindedness is a critical skill to develop, uh, but it's like any other muscle in the body. It has to be developed uh, through sheer practice. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Those are good thoughts. Uh, we're over 30 minutes into this, John, so I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but what do you see on the horizon when 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 you look out uh, into sort of the entrepreneur and startup space? What what do you think the the big things, not from a business sector perspective, but sort of the big challenges that people will 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 be facing going forward? I think we live in a very interesting time um, when it comes to startups. I think it's never been easier in terms of getting into one. But I think what comes with that is the risk that everyone can do this. The barrier to entry has really dropped to the point where, a bit like music these days, anyone can, you know, um, you know, create some percussive noise and get it on the internet these days. The question becomes, how do you get people to pay attention to what you're doing? So I think you have to stand out. So I think what I see uh, for the future is the more that people – um, think about standing out, being unique, being different, um, the better um, and as early as possible, because I think that's where success is going to come from. It's not about being a me too startup. It's not about uh, trying to go and be the sixth, eighth, tenth person that's uh, pursuing the same problem to be solved. Uh, I think there's a thousand problems, if not 10,000 problems in almost every industry out there. Um, so if people do their customer discovery well and then understand how to stand out and then pursue that journey uh, persistently, I think the opportunities massively outweigh the risks of not being able to stand out even today, uh, partly because those tools are available to everyone now. You really can reach the world in a way we couldn't have done 20 years ago. Um, and that makes for a lot of excitement, I think, for, uh, for individual startup uh, interested people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So, uh, John, if you had a uh, student come to you, let's say they're graduating uh, this May, they're getting mm -hmm. their, their degree, and mm -hmm. th their question to you is, uh, look, I'm trying to figure out whether I, I should do a startup, I have some great ideas, or should I go work for a larger company for a period of time and, and sort of let them, uh, you know, let me make my mistakes with them? Or should I go work and be employee number, you know, five, six, seven, eight, or 20 in sort of a smaller entrepreneurial business? If those are sort of the three options that, that most folks graduating these days have, uh, mm -hmm. what, are, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I think about this in a very specific way. And in fact, uh, I, I teach mindset is the very first semester course that I teach on the uh, MBA concentration um, for entrepreneurship. So firstly, it depends on who you are as an individual. And I think you have to be really realistic about who you are and how ready you are for the journey ahead. Um, and readiness is a really difficult concept. We haven't got time to dive into too much, but it might be physical readiness. It might be mental readiness, you know, and obviously we can do things when we're young that perhaps we can't when, you know, we're perhaps married or got kids and the rest of it. So all these things come into play. But I think what it comes down to, the assessment is more about what it is you want to do with your entrepreneurial life in the long term. And again, that problem you think might need solving. And then which is the best way to build the knowledge I need um, to really be effective in that space? Um, so then all three things come into play. You could say, um, I picked a particular industry and I think I need to get on the inside of that industry. And there's nothing wrong with saying I'm going to go and work for a company, uh, small, medium or large in that space, because I need to get on the inside and really see that problem from the inside. Uh, or I want to build my startup skills. And again, I would say it would be, um, if not in, very close to the segment that you're most interested in. Or if you think you're ready mentally, 
um, you can equally jump into the space. And that's particularly true when it is clear blue ocean and time matters. Um, and I think individuals can then uh, decide that I think I've got the mental toughness for this journey ahead. The time is now. Uh, then the question becomes, can I find people to join me on this journey? Um, so I think all three are viable, but I think self-assessment is the key. And you've got to be super realistic with yourself. There's no room for rose-colored glasses about this because it's such a tough journey if you're going to go the entrepreneurship journey out of the gate as a student. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice, John. That's really great advice. Um, so I want to wrap this up, but I want to ask you one more thing. Is there anything uh, that I should have asked you that I haven't, or is there any other things that you want to you want to share and talk about? I think the one thing I would come back to just to reiterate a little bit is I, I think the book that I have put out recently um, is important for one reason, and it's not so much the contents of the book. It's the overarching message that I'd like to communicate the most. And, and that is that I think individuals can de-risk their forward path, particularly when it comes to entrepreneurialism, by asking questions. Um, I'm a great believer that that's the beginning of many, many journeys. Um, and it's pretty cost effective to do. It doesn't take much to go and ask that tribe of customers that you think have got a need for your product, service, social entrepreneurship idea, whatever it might be, uh, at scale and get them to go and give you feedback. Um, I don't think people spend enough time doing that. Um, and my book is really all about giving them uh, some ideas about the sort of questions they can ask, uh, which are not rocket science. They're more about what keep, uh, keeps people up at night. Um, you know, what are the major challenges they're facing? What are the friction points that they're trying to deal with? Um, so you can find the patterns that are necessary. So I, I think it's all about de-risking the journey well before you spent money building a product, bootstrapping, uh, even worse, borrowing money, running up the credit cards, uh, or even you know getting venture capital. I see lots of venture capital raised um, for ideas that uh, just don't seem valid in the first place to me. That can all be de-risked with a little effort. So I, I hope uh, people can uh, do more of that in the future than perhaps they're doing today. Great, great wrap-up, John. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, I really uh, learned some stuff here and really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope that our paths will cross sometime in the future. Oh, I do as well, Baylor. Thank you very much. I much appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Mike, uh, I really had a good time talking to John. Uh, I found him to be a very interesting person, very engaging. Uh, what was one of the things that sort of jumped out at you at our conversation? Well, I loved uh, kind of the first main point that he made. Um, I also am a big fan of uh, the lean methodology and, and use it along with some other tools to teach. And I've always used the, the product market fit. Uh, and I, I use a worksheet um, and I kind of have an exercise to get the students thinking about that. And John made a great argument that makes a ton of sense to me that it's like, no, it should be the market product fit, that you need to understand the market first and then design the product to fit the market, not trying to fit a market into the uh, product into the market. So this, I, I, this is a philosophy that I always use, that you should understand your customers' needs first, their pain points, and then design a product. Don't come to me with the, the idea if you haven't studied the, the market. So by switching this, you really send a strong signal to entrepreneurs and students um, that they really need to focus on the, on the market. So I grabbed his book and I've, I've uh, read through that, and I've got these worksheets he talked about, uh, and I'm going to probably adapt these a little bit, but, uh, but use them in, the, in my entrepreneurship class this semester. So I thought that was cool. Bela, what's your sense? Market product or product market? Yeah, you know, I thought, I thought John had a very nice way of articulating that. And I'll tell you an exercise that I use in my entrepreneurship class. It's all about opportunity recognition. Um, and I guess I and maybe other people have called this opportunity recognition as opposed to market product fit. Um, but one of the things I do in this exercise is I send students out to the grocery store. And I say, I just want you to observe what's going on in the grocery store for a half hour to an hour. And then based on that, come up with ways that you could improve the customer shopping experience. Uh, 
And um, so here we're looking at observation, observing the market, and then based on that, coming up with suggestions and ideas. And I think uh, that's sort of a slight riff on what John was talking about. But I think I'm a big believer in that. And I'll tell you, uh, the first company that I started, um, we did none of that. (laughs) We designed the product first, and then we went and had a big unveil to the marketplace. And we got it about 80% right, but that was not enough. And uh, we went out of business. So it's a lesson that I learned early on in my career. And I think one that's very, very important uh, for listeners uh, to, to, to take heed of. Yeah, me too. The first startups I was, was involved with, we, we didn't do that. It was not the normal methodology. This is a long, you know, a long time ago before lean methodology and uh, you know, before business model canvas and things like this. So it was kind of the old-fashioned write a business plan approach. Um, and yeah, totally screwed it up. Yeah. So I think the other thing that struck me was this notion uh, that you know, your market reach, your potential is really huge these days. Uh, we have the ability uh, through various different distribution channels to sell our products around the world. And um, so in the old days when you had to find, uh, you know, 100,000 customers within a, uh, 200 miles of where your business is, uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, you have the opportunity to find 100,000 customers in a much larger geographic area because our supply chain and our distribution has gotten so much better given technology. So I think that's another thing that people can think about where you can find niches uh, and, and you can sell stuff. And, you know, here's a great example of this, which I, I, I've, I use. It's called eBay. Uh, I have some old bike parts and some old fishing gear that I really have no use for. And lo and behold, you know, I can find people someplace in the United States that are interested in buying that that slightly used, but still in really good shape, uh, thing that I have no use for. So it's like one person selling one item to one individual. And the fact that we can do that in such a large geographic area is just phenomenal to me. Yeah. And, you know, really 7.3 billion people and a pretty big chunk of them have access to the internet. Uh, And now, especially with technology being able to do real-time translation, Right. Um, market reach is just going to continue to um, broaden and you're going to be able to reach a wider and wider audience. The flip side is that all 7.3 billion people can also compete with you. So it makes it even more important that you understand the market and that you have a compelling value proposition. So market reach is more important and it not only integrates more opportunity, but it uh, uh, creates more risk as well. So I think it really makes you sharpen your focus as an entrepreneur on who are all the potential customers and how will you reach them in a unique and valuable way. So I think it's a great kind of framing point and a great set of guideposts in which entrepreneurs should think about creating and sustaining a business. Yeah, excellent point about the competition there, Mike. Uh, it, it, it really does make it easy for other people to compete with you. And that's why we see all these little niches and that's often why we see large companies struggling to hold on to their market share because now all of a sudden you can have lots and lots of these smaller organizations nibbling away at a large company's product lines um, and um, they, have a, they have a harder time reacting to that. Yeah, and a lot of it's not just the product, but it's the service that you provide, right? And this doesn't hold for every business and every vertical market, but it's the idea that, you know what, if I understand your needs as a customer and I understand the culture of your organization or if I understand who you are and what's important to you, um, I should be able to be agile enough to serve that. And even if there's six different products that are very, very similar, if I can differentiate based on service and communicate that to you effectively, I can win. And I think that's, people forget that. Service. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just the product. It's the service that oftentimes makes the difference. Sometimes people are price sensitive. So sure, if I can shave a few cents off, but more often than not, people will pay in a lot of industries. People will pay for a little better service. Yeah. No, I think you're right. uh, There's lots of companies who have built their reputation on service, and that's been their differentiating factor. And um, so, so that is clearly a good point there, Mike. The last thing I thought that was interesting um, is I is I asked John the question that you and I often ponder, 
when a student comes and talks to us about, hey, you know, I'm going to graduate in May. Should I do my startup? Should I join a smaller entrepreneurial company? Or should I take this offer from a Fortune 1000 company that I have? And I thought John's take on it was pretty interesting where he sort of said, you know what? This really comes down to personal choice. It comes down to what fits you the best uh, and what you kind of get excited about. There is no wrong or right answer here, um, but you just have to sort of keep the ultimate goal in mind. So if you want to start a company, there's probably no easier time than now, um, meaning when you're just graduating. Um because once you start down a path, sometimes it's a little more difficult to get off that path. And of course, the other consideration is what's going on in sort of the startup ecosystem. Uh, number one, geographically where you are and what's going on nationally or internationally in the startup ecosystem. Because there are points in time where there's a lot of investment dollars available for startups. And there are other points in time when there's a lot less money available so it's more difficult to start. So um, I thought those were good points that John made. And uh, uh, what are your thoughts, Mike? Anything to add to that? Uh, agreed. You know, it's just being responsive. And, you know, sometimes you want to try to catch the trends early, right? And if, hey, it's a good climate for being an entrepreneur, do it. And if not, this is a great time to get some big company experience and use that to build your resume and to build your contacts in your network. So, yeah, I think it's a, just a question of not only kind of, chasing your passion, but also reading the market and, and, and playing the long game, right? Rather than, than um, simply saying, I want this for my life, so I'm going to do all of this now, um, is let's build a strategic plan, essentially, um, and take advantage of the market conditions. And I think if you do that, you'll be just fine. Yeah, agreed. What do you think? Is that a wrap, Mike? I think that's a wrap. Well, we're happy that you joined us today. Uh, we hope that you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. Uh, we sure as heck did. We really uh, appreciated everything that John Warner brought uh, to the podcast today. Uh, we, as usual, have a couple of small requests. One is if you have any questions about what we've discussed or suggestions about future topics or potential guests, uh, get in touch with us. We uh, always enjoy hearing from you. Uh, and trust me, we actually read and answer every email that gets sent to us. Our email is Bela dot and dot mike at gmail.com and second if you like what we're doing it always is helpful to hit subscribe on your podcast app um, or if you want to be radical and write us a quick review uh, that would be great as well uh, you know and always if you know others that might find us interesting please uh, share the podcast link with them we uh, we like to expand the reach uh, as much as possible right bella you getcha so thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Sounds great, Bela. That's it from over here in Münster, Germany, where uh, I think I'll have a pretzel, a nice big soft pretzel when I get home today. Have a great week mm, and hey, talk to you soon. Isn't it going to be Oktoberfest soon over yeah, there? Yeah, but Mike? we don't like to date the uh, podcast, do we? But it is. It is Oktoberfest <laughs> time right now. Uh, in southern Germany, in Munich especially, and in all over Bavaria, uh, people are celebrating essentially the harvest. And there's a long story going for a long – we could do a whole Oktoberfest episode if listeners wanted to. Um, but, yeah, it celebrates the marriage of a king and queen in Bavaria and the harvest. Uh, and people are coming from all over the world to drink a lot of beer. Up here in Münster, it's not such a big deal. But I got a little southern German in me, so I, we always like to celebrate a little bit up here. Well, excellent. Uh, enjoy uh, Oktoberfest. Mike. Yeah, next year you'll have to come over for it, Bella. Now that you're retired, there's no excuse. Yeah, <laughs> sounds we'll good. We'll get you in the later, Hosen, buddy. <laughs> yeah, sure, that'll be a sight. Yeah, we'll, we'll post those photos to the website. Okay, Mike, All right. thanks. See you. Bye, Bella. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.